Uh, I appreciate that we pointed out this little uh, flyer on your seats there. This, uh, this contains the talking points of the last couple Sundays in this six-week conversation around human sexuality that we're calling Posture. And so if you've missed any of the weeks, you can use these and kind of review quickly some of the main ideas from the last several weeks. And I've really been so encouraged by many of you that have uh, reached out to me, texted, uh, called, emailed, stopped me in the hallway to say thank you. So many have said thanks for talking about this important topic, for not being afraid to go to Scripture and let it speak into the reality and the truth of our current culture. And I've been really encouraged by so many of you. And, and others of you that have had concerns, I'm very thankful that you've come to talk to me. And uh, we've been able to sit down and, and, and uh, share our stories with each other and, and talk about what God is doing in your life. So I just want to encourage you to keep this conversation going. This is week four of six weeks, and if at any point you want to talk more, our pastoral team is ready to sit and listen to your story, hear your heart, uh, try to answer any questions you might have. So Pastor Nate, Pastor Jessica, Pastor Jason, Pastor Kim, myself, uh, all ready to sit and talk with you. I want to encourage you to reach out to us. Uh, Last week, we did a deep dive into a truth that is universally accepted around our world, that our world is an imperfect place that there is uh, hardship, suffering, and pain uh, all around our planet. I mean, today, hundreds will die because of war and genocide. Thousands will face abuse and bullying. Millions will say something they regret that hurts a family member or a friend, and they will wish they could take it back. And, And we know that God created us to walk towards life, and yet we find this experience almost daily that we are stumbling around, tripping over ourselves down the path towards death. Uh, towards hurt and separation, sin, anything we do that, that hurts uh, our neighbor, hurts ourselves, pushes away from God. We talked about this last week, and one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 7 that somewhat captures this when he was teaching his friends, he said, enter God's kingdom through the narrow gate, because the gate is large and the road is wide that leads to death and hell, and many people go that way. And then Jesus said, but the gate is small, And the road is narrow that leads to life, and only a few people find it. I don't know about you, I want to be one of those that find that road of life, that enter through that small gate. I want to know how I can live out what I was created to do in this world. And I want to be walking on that narrow road. And we want to invite others to help us find that, and we want to invite them to walk with us. Our hope here at Hillcrest is that many will join us as we pursue new life together in Jesus, the one on whom we build our lives. He is the firm foundation that we trust, his teaching, his way of life. When we walk the road towards life, we call it discipleship, we call it sanctification. When we walk the road towards death, we call it sin, we call it separation, and we want to be on the way of life. One of the talking points you'll find on the handout from from, uh, last uh, week, our third week, Uh, is summarized there with the statement that we don't define what is sinful. God does. That that Jesus is the one who engineers life and laid out that path that leads towards life. We we don't decide what is wrong based on what we feel on the inside, what our heart tells us. We we trust that Jesus has laid it out and given us uh, good instruction in Scripture. He He said himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And we believe that. One of the uh, things we're going to talk about this morning is about singleness and marriage. We're going to go to a letter uh, that Paul wrote to this ancient community of Corinth and what he had to say about marriage and singleness because that really has something to say about our view of sexuality. So we want to talk about that this morning. 
And uh, before we get there, that, that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, before we go there, I just want to ask this question. How many of you uh, this last fall uh, saw that show that popped up on our TVs? How many of you watched The Golden Bachelor? Anybody watch that last fall? This is the same experience in the first service. There was a few proud people, and then there were many that went like, <laughs> that was, I maybe saw some of that. Um, there's something about The Bachelor, right? I mean, it has been around since 2001. They've had 27 different seasons of The Bachelor. If you don't know what it is, one man stands before something like 30 women, and over the course of the season, uh, week by week, he sends some home, and by the end, he's got the one that he's been hoping for, this, this woman of his dreams. And uh, The Golden Bachelor was the first time they had a, an older more mature man, a man of 72, played the, the role of The Bachelor. And something like 30,000 women applied to be on The Golden Bachelor. And then I'm like, that, I would not do that. No, that would, even if I was The Bachelor, I'd be get, uh, sign, I'm out. That's too many. I, I can't handle that. Too much pressure. Uh, ABC wanted to kind of balance out the power dynamic. So in 2003, they started hosting The Bachelorette which was the opposite idea with one woman and many men. And, and uh, you know, there's been 20 seasons of that. We love watching these shows where people are trying to find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. We love the, the drama, the emotion, the heartbreak, the, the blind optimism of romantic love. And uh, I think we like it because many of us have been there. Many of us have faced uh, relational challenges. We've faced rom- romance. We've faced failure. And and maybe it's because we've been on that same relational kind of game show ourselves, and so we, we like to see others go through it. Dating apps are out there. There's eHarmony and Match.com, and they promise to help us find our, our true one, that one person we're looking for. eHarmony has over 15 million subscribers, and Match, which is the goat of uh, dating apps, has close to 40 million hopeful daters on it. There's a lot of people looking for love. And you might not know my story. Angela and I got married about eight years ago. We met on Match.com. I I say that proudly. And uh, we've often thought, wouldn't it be fun if if Match came to us and wanted to tell our story, one of our, you know, a success story for Match, but they haven't reached out yet, not that we've seen. Um, And I remember thinking the monthly subscription for Match in order to kind of communicate with people is $34.99, at least it was uh, a decade ago. And I remember sitting there thinking, when am I going to pay that? You know, when is it going to be worth it? And then I ran into Angela DeMunk online and uh, this wonderful, creative, lovely woman. And I said, it, here's my 35 bucks. Sign me up. I want to send her a note. And uh, so that's how we met. Mo- most people that we encounter are, are in a relationship or looking for a relationship or recovering from a relationship. We are fed a steady stream of content telling us that, that we are incomplete until we find someone who will love us. And we know that God created us for community, for, for connection with others. We all desire relational intimacy, not, not sexual intimacy so much, but relational intimacy that we would know someone and they would know us and we would have this depth of connection. And marriage and romantic love is one way to experience this, but too often uh, we have boiled it down as, as the only way. And we're, we're missing out on, on a whole part of what God wants to say to us. There, you know, 50% of the U.S. population is single. If someone is single, are, are they supposed to not experience this kind of deep connection that God created us for? And you might be thinking, well, 50% is single. I had no idea. I might be, that might sound high to you. You might think, I don't know many single people. And uh, to be honest, I think churches have often increased the isolation and the pressure on those who are not married. Uh, unintentionally, perhaps, but I would imagine many singles in, in our congregation have sometimes felt like second-class citizens 
because of how we plan our events or highlight things or even things maybe I have said or others have said and I, I certainly don't want that to be the case but I know it happens. So this morning I, I want to remind us, I want to remind you and me that marriage is sometimes something we are called to but singleness is also something that people are, are called to. Both are honored equally in uh, the church and in Scripture, we see that in the Bible, that both are equally honored in importance and a calling in people's lives. Uh, we're going to see that in Paul's letter this morning. So before we jump to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you of a few things. First, Jesus was single, and he had deep connections with others, deep relationships and friendships. Paul was a single man, and he was used powerfully by God. John the Baptist was single. Maybe not the best uh, example since he lived in the wilderness and ate locusts, but... Um, but he was a single man. And uh, Jesus once said that of all the people on earth, John the Baptist is the most important person, a single person. That's what Jesus said. So I want to invite you to find a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, you can open up on your, uh, your phone, your Bible app, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to look at what Paul has to say about marriage and singleness this morning. And it's a, it's a longer passage. We're not going to be able to hit all of the verses in there. But Paul is writing to a church in the ancient world uh, called Corinth, and they found themselves in the Roman culture, and the, the Roman culture, you know, would, would kind of rival Cancun at spring break, if, uh, if we're honest about it, the kind of culture that they lived in. And from what we know of Scripture, it looks like Paul wrote four different letters to Corinth. Uh, in the first Corinthians, he mentions a letter that was before first Corinthians, and in second Corinthians, he mentions another letter that was written, and so we think Paul wrote about four letters to Corinth. We have letter number two and letter number four in, in the Bible, and first Corinthians was written because Paul had received letters from, from the people in that town, and he had heard uh, eyewitness accounts of what they were going through, and Paul had some concerns about the church. He saw that they were struggling with division. Uh, they were separating from each other. They, he knew that some were struggling with fake God worship and confusion about what to believe. And there were others that were confused about how to leave sin behind and walk towards life. And so Paul wanted to write to them to clarify some things. And, and as any book in the Bible we go to, we have to start by saying, well, what? it was written to a particular group of people at a particular time for a specific reason. So what, why did Paul write to them? And then we can start to ask, so what does it mean to us? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, and let's see what Paul writes to his friends in Corinth. He starts with these words, Now for the matters you wrote about, and then he quotes them, It's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. So Paul starts by saying, You wrote me, and now I want to talk about what you wrote me. We see this throughout 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, he starts with, now about food sacrificed to idols, because they had asked questions about idol food. In chapter 12, he opens with, and now about spiritual gifts, because they'd asked about spiritual gifts. In chapter 16, he starts with, now about the collection for God's people, because they'd asked about collecting funds to help those in need. And so here in chapter 7, he says, now you wrote me about sexual relations. So let's talk about that for a minute. And uh, the people had written and said, Maybe it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They, they were surrounded in their culture by so much confusion about sexuality. They were surrounded by people who have been suffering and misused and abused and tormented because of sexuality. And they began to say, maybe it's better if we just write the whole thing off. Even for those who are married, let, let's just not engage in it at all. And as a single man, 
Paul says, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. He says, sex is a good thing for a husband and a wife. And, and Paul affirms this gift of marriage uh, throughout his letters, I think especially in Ephesians 5, where he says marriage is, is a great illustration of a, a loving relationship we're called to have with Jesus, that Jesus is like the groom and we are like the bride, and we're supposed to have this closeness and intimacy, this trust and faithfulness toward one another between us and Jesus. And so Paul says, I think this is a good thing. And then he writes some more. Look at verse 3. He says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. Wow, I mean, that is something for our culture today, that we don't have autonomy over our bodies as husbands and wives, Paul says. That's challenging. Verse 5, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul says, I'm a single man and it's a gift in my life, and I wish you could also have that gift in your life. But he realizes not everyone is called to singleness, so he says uh, there are some who are called to marriage. And he says both, both are gifts, both are callings from God, our good God, who wants to be involved in our relational lives. Neither singleness nor marriage is better than or less than the other. They're both good. God can use both and calls, calls us to either one or the other. So if you're, you're married, he says you're to yield your body and submit to the other. Men, married men, surrender your body to your wife. Married women, surrender your body to your husband. Now, this is not an invitation uh, to demand or force or bend someone to your will. This idea is about mutual submission, the kindness and, and selflessness of giving yourself over to the other. Paul writes about this specifically in Ephesians 5 where he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Give yourself to one another. When you marry, you, you give yourself over to the other out of love and mutuality and companionship. Paul is concerned for the wives and husbands in Corinth that they submit to each other and serve one another and grow in their love for each other. When the Bible talks about marriage, it talks about husbands and wives. What, what is it talking about? What is marriage according to Scripture? Is it, is it simply a relational contract between two consenting people, two people of any gender, or is it something else? Is there some definition for us? I want to remind us of what we talked about last week, that when it comes to understanding what is the way of life, that Scripture guides us, that Scripture speaks to us, that, that we don't develop it ourselves, but we receive it from God as, as a good and faithful God who knows us and created us and wants us to walk towards Him in life. Over the last few decades in our culture and really around the world, marriage and its definition have been expanding and, and changing. We've seen that happen, and so let's do a little geography here. In uh, 2001, the Netherlands hosted the very first legal same-sex wedding, and uh, since then, 30 different countries have all, and governments around the world really, have opened up pathways for gay men and women to enter into marriages and, and the benefits of marriage in their countries. Here's a, a map, just some more geography, to show you what, what are the countries that allow for uh, this openness in marriage, and you see they're all around the world, 30 or so, and there's obviously more that still do not have a legal way for that to happen. 
1996, the Defense of Marriage Act was signed into law in our country that said that marriage, it defined marriage as a, uh, something between a man and a woman. And then about seven later, years later, in 2013, it was deemed un- unconstitutional. And then in June of 2015, the Supreme Court granted the right of marriage to every adult. The idea of, this idea of marriage equity, it brought really a sense, if you think about it, a sense of relief and hope and um, joy for, for many. Some of my friends, many who are part of the Hillcrest community here, people of faith all around our country rejoiced at that. What, is, what does the Bible have to say about marriage? Paul writes to men and women. He writes to wives and husbands. What else does the Bible say about marriage? The Bible actually talks about marriage quite a bit. It talks about all kinds of marriages, good marriages and bad marriages and some marriages that never should have happened. I think about Solomon who had something like 700 wives um, as the wisest man, that seems like, uh, seems just dumb to me. <laughs> that, that would have been his setup. Not, not a good move. The power cultures of the Bible were certainly skewed by human brokenness. And into that reality, there are wonderful stories in the Bible of marriage. There are beautiful examples of what marriage can look like and, and why it came about. I want to look at the very beginning of it in Genesis chapter 1. And I want to say that at Hillcrest here in in our denomination that we belong to, the covenant denomination, we believe that marriage is more than just a social benefit between two agreeable adults. We believe that marriage is a covenant union, a a holy promise between a man and a woman. And I want to show you why we believe that in in the scriptures this morning. So first in Genesis, when we go to Genesis chapter 1, we read the creation story. And there's this wonderful uh, pairing of things that are different and yet connected, things that are similar and yet separate. And I like how Preston Sprinkle writes about this in his book called People to be Loved. Here's what he writes. He says, notice that Genesis 1 ripples with a creative display of diversity that complements each other. God and creation, light and darkness, earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. And at the pinnacle of God's creation stands the masterpiece of male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 1, verse 27. God created mankind, male and female, he created them. So in the creation story, we have this idea of things that are different and yet united. We have light and dark that are different, but they're required so that they can exist in a distinct way. There's earth and sky that are different, but where they meet, they, they form our physical world God and creation that are different, and yet the world reveals the character and the power of its creator. And then there's male and female, different, and yet they both reveal the image of God through their lives. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, which gives us the creation story again, but it really focuses in on the creation of, of humankind. Adam is pulled from the dirt of the earth and, and enlivened by the breath of God, and then God says this in Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said... It's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. It's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make a suitable helper. And that word helper, it may have some baggage for you. It might sound a little bit like Adam was greater and needed someone lesser to serve him when you hear that word helper. But you need to know that the Hebrew word for helper that's used here, almost every other time it's used in the Old Testament, it's referring to God as the helper of Israel that he is their supply, he is the one. So God is not inferior to Israel, not even equal then. So this idea of helper really is the one who supplies what is missing, the one who is needed to bring completion. It's a powerful word. 
And then this word suitable is important as well, a suitable helper. So God then takes Adam to all the animals. He says, I want you to name the animals. And the implication is like we're looking for that suitable helper. And so Adam, with all of his creativity, begins to name the animals. I can imagine, can you imagine what that would have played out like? I mean, like hippopotamus, you know, and flamingo and blobfish and capybara and all that. And after a while of naming animals, I I imagine being exhausted creatively. So he's like down to rat cat, you know, it's about all I got left, you know. So he names all the animals and no suitable helper is found, and so we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he's sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. He took from his side. It's, It's important that it's not above him, below him, it's from his side, a partner, And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This word suitable in verse 18, it's made up of two smaller Hebrew words. The first short one has to, it kind of has the idea of similarity or as, is the way it means, and then the second smaller Hebrew word has the idea of, of difference or against. So help, it's this idea of suitable is one that is like and yet different, similar and yet opposed to. So the same and yet not the same, that's the helper that Adam needed. Someone like him and yet not like him. Again, we go back to that light and dark, sea and land idea, the connected and yet different. So God made Eve, and Adam said, whoa, man that's the one. (laughs) That's the suitable helper I was looking for. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, like me and yet out of me, taken out of me, different than me. Not just another human, but a woman. And verse 24, very important what it says. It says, this difference, the fact that they were different, male and female, this difference is why the man leaves his father and mother and becomes united to his wife. It's why he marries the other. Genesis 2 appears to tell us that marriage is a one flesh union between two differently gendered people, between a male and a female, similar and yet different. And now I say that, and for some of us, we say, yes, that's right. You know, we want to affirm that. Others of us hear that and we're thinking, well, I mean, what does that, what does that really mean? How does that get applied in our world today? And then there's others of us whose experience maybe tells a very different story, and we hear what, you hear my words, and it's breaking your heart as I'm talking right now. We need to understand that people receive this truth in different ways. It's not an easy truth for many. If we move into the New Testament, let's see what Jesus has to say, and what we'll find is that Jesus uh, points out this gender difference as well. Matthew 19, some religious leaders are trying to find flaws in Jesus' teaching and ministry, and so they ask him about divorce. And they say, should divorce be easy and available to men uh, all the time and any, any reason they have so they can leave their wives? And to this, Jesus replies, he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He quotes uh, Genesis 1 we just read and Genesis 2 that we just read. They become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, divorce should not be simple or available for any, just any reason. A few verses later, he says, there's one reason for divorce, and that's when there's an unfaithfulness between the husband and the wife. 
What I find interesting in this passage is that Jesus is trying to talk about the permanence of marriage, and he could have just quoted Genesis chapter 2 to make that point, that the two become one flesh, that the two become one. But he adds on to that Genesis chapter 1, this difference of, of gender, this idea of male and female. He adds that in because it matters. Because the Bible defines marriage not as a union between two consenting adults who fall in love with each other, but because God's word defines marriage as a covenant promise between two sexually, physically different people, between a man and a woman. And again, this could be difficult for you to hear. It affects real lives, people that we care about, family members and friends that we're thinking about right now, maybe even our own experience. We have people that might ask us, what do you think about same-sex marriage? And do we really expect gay men and women to spend their entire lives never experiencing marriage? That seems cruel. That seems maybe unjust to some of us. And I really don't have an easy answer for you. I'm thankful for people like uh, Dr. Greg, who's going to be with us next weekend, who has thought deeply about this. I know he would talk about three different options for those who are same-sex attracted that can involve this depth of community connection that they are longing for. But I'm glad that Greg will be with us to talk more about this next week. One of the things is that we minimize the idea of singleness. We minimize it and make it seem less. And so I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul's writing about marriage and then he writes also about singleness. Verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this. He says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. Marriage doesn't solve all of our problems. Can I get an amen? No, don't say amen. Don't, <laughs> don't do it. Um, that will not go well for you later. <laughs> but, but marriage doesn't solve our, it doesn't necessarily rid us of loneliness. It doesn't remove sexual temptation. It's, it's not always satisfying it won't always satisfy our emotional needs. It will not eliminate life's difficulties. And Paul goes on to write that remaining single, as Paul is, could be a gift that God is offering you. I want to look at verse uh, 32 here of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writing here, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Verse 35, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. Did you catch the benefits to those who are single that Paul says there? They're able to devote themselves in an undivided way to what God is calling them to be about, what he's calling them to do and work and serve, how to serve in their life. If you're single, you're able to focus on pleasing God and, the, and give your energies to the community that he's called you to, he's placed you in. Remember in verse 7, Paul says that his singleness is a gift. So those of you who are single, do you see it as a gift? Does it feel like a gift to you as Paul talks about Verse 32, Paul says he'd like all people to be free from the concerns of marriage. Other translations say from the anxieties of marriage, the complications, the worries of marriage. That this is the benefit if you are single. I've had seasons of singleness in my life, and, and I, th I think what Paul's writing about here is true. There's a different way that you approach life when you are single. Angela, my wife, she was single for 37 years. 
And she talks about the closeness and the intimacy she experienced with God during those years. There were many times along the way when she longed to be married, and there were also many times along the way when she felt a deep connection with God and with his people, and she didn't feel like she was missing out on anything. He used her to teach kids, to lead people in worship, to pray for hurting friends. God used her uh, to share life in authentic community with others. And all of these things poured love and purpose and fulfillment into her heart and, and God was close and she felt his presence in intimate ways. And I, I, we talk about that together as a married couple now that when we were single, there was, God was intimate in a different way, in a close way that we, we sometimes miss. Even though we, we love being married, she loves being married to me, I love being married to her. But, but Angela was able to grow to a place where marriage wasn't the, the ultimate goal, it wasn't the finish line for her life. She found contentment in the singleness that she had and saw that God was using it for his good and, and, and brought impact through her into the lives of others. It was a good calling in her life. And so is marriage. Being able to focus on what God would have you do today or tomorrow without any distractions or other considerations, that is a gift. Even Jesus acknowledged this gift back in Matthew 19. He made this, he said, talked about marriage and made it clear that Marriage is a lifelong pursuit, and so his disciples said, well, maybe it's better not to get married at all if it's a lifelong thing. And Jesus said, this is in Matthew 19, he said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it is given. He said, there are those who choose to live for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He said, there's those who choose to be single and live for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, and the one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus says it's a good thing. If you're married, that's what God has called you to, it's a gift, even when it doesn't feel like it. If you're single, that's what God has called you to for a season, maybe for a lifetime, and it is a gift, even when it doesn't maybe feel like it every day. And I want to say as we wrap up here that if, if we've done anything as a church community, if I've said anything that's hurt you as a single adult, has made you feel less than, would you please forgive us, forgive me? If you feel like you've been isolated or hurt by that, would you talk to me about it? Being single is not always easy, it's not always fun, but same could be said for marriage, couldn't it? Jesus and Paul would encourage each one of us to see the situation we have in our life as a gift, and place our lives in, in, in God's hands and celebrate what he's called us to, find contentment in it. And I also want to invite any of us who are married and, and part of a family to, to be aware of friends who are single. Are you inviting people over for family celebrations, for holidays, for important important moments in your life or in their life? Are you welcoming individual men and women into your small community groups and looking to those who might be feeling left out and making sure you're welcoming everyone in? Each of us has a calling from God and we need each other to, to build what God is calling us to build, to find connection. The Bible says we're built together as the people of God. And those who are single, those who are married, those who identify in the LGBTQ community, we need to welcome all people that they, they belong with us, they, they can be here with us. We need one another to move forward to what God is calling us to be about as a family of God. Every person matters. Every person is made in his image. And we can celebrate that. Let's close in, in prayer together, continuing to ask God to help us live out this reality, live out this truth. I wanna invite the worship team to come out as we go to prayer. And will you bow your heads with me and, and let's pray together. Father God, we, we thank you that we can talk about these difficult and life-giving things. 
Father, right now we think about friends who have a different experience than we have. If we're single, we think about those who are married. If we're married, we think about those who are single. If we're straight, we think about those who are gay. Father, we think about those who have different experiences than we have. And we ask that you would help us grow in our ability to have a kind posture towards others, a welcoming heart, an an open ear to listen. Father, we thank you that scripture gives us the truth. It speaks to us about the way of life, what you created us for. And Father, when there is uh, dissonance, when there is a challenge in the way that life, that we experience life and what we see in scripture, would you speak to us, Spirit of God? Would you settle our hearts? Meet us where we are. Call us back to yourself. Allow us to grow in our trust that you are good and faithful that you care deeply about our lives, Father. We ask that you would help us experience new life because of Jesus, because he came, because he died, because he rose again. We want to be transformed by you, Father. So we offer our lives to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing together. Amen. I want to invite the prayer team down. For anybody that's willing to dive deeper into their prayer life that needs, that needs healing, needs deliverance. Maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with something in your family. Maybe you have thoughts in your mind that you need some clarity. You need someone to walk with you, to step with you, just acknowledge that you're not alone. This is your, this is your opportunity right here and right now. So I invite you guys, if you need that, to step down in prayer as we close out service. Thank you so much for joining us this Sunday morning at our second service. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 10.30. If this is your first time to Hillcrest, we just want to say welcome, and we hope that you enjoyed the service this morning. Can we give Pastor Nate a hand clap for delivering such an amazing word for us this morning? And as we exit with a heart of gratitude, we encourage you to drop your tithes and your connection cards, your offerings, and the joy boxes by the doors out front. Because here at Hillcrest, we give with gratitude. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us online. We're so grateful for you. Let me send you out with a blessing. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. And may he give you peace for the days ahead. Go and be great. We love you, Hillcrest. And we'll see you next time.